Good evening. Uh, my name is Charles Goodhart and I'm your chairman tonight. I'm your chairman primarily because I've known Don for something like about three, maybe even four decades. <laughs> it will give you some indication of how long. I'm not sure I want to be reminded of that, Charles. <laughs> when I say that when we first met, our hair, well, both of our hairs were somewhat <laughs> different colors. Right. Anyhow, um, Don is a consummate central banker. He's uh, been in the Federal Reserve for many, many years until his recent retirement. Uh, there's much too much emphasis on the person of uh, the chairman or the governor of the central bank. Uh, a great deal of the work that is done by a central bank, although it's the end is frequently professed in the name of the chairman or the governor, is actually done by the people who work the machine. And Don has always worked the machine at the Federal <laughs> Reserve better than anybody else uh, I've ever known. Uh, he's also been a great friend uh, of the UK in general and of the Bank of England in particular. Uh, he came over at an earlier stage, was it 2000? 2000, yes. To look at the workings of the Monetary Policy Committee and give a report to Eddie George. And now he is one of the external uh, members of the uh, Financial Policy Committee, which is sort of being set up in embryo. So we're delighted to have him here tonight, and he's going to talk to us on the subject of transparency, which I'm glad to say that under his guidance, us central bankers, if I can make still regard myself as having once been one, have become more and more transparent through our lives. So now you can see right through us. <laughs> Don. <laughs> Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Charles. Uh, it's certainly a great pleasure to be here at the London School of Economics to present my first public speech as a member of the Interim Financial Policy Committee. I can't think of a better venue. The Financial Markets Group at LSE has been the in the forefront of thinking on financial stability, and I'm greatly indebted to Charles for all that he has patiently taught me about central banking and transparency, I would say, Charles and financial markets over the years at innumerable conferences and in many private conversations. I'm honored to have the opportunity to serve on the Financial Policy Committee. In the wake of the financial crisis, I can think of no more important tasks than to bring a broad economic and financial perspective to the supervision and regulation of the financial system. An element of that perspective has always been applied to the oversight of the financial system, but at least in advanced economies, it hasn't been applied systematically and forcefully, bringing to bear a wide range of expertise and analysis. It is important that we succeed, and I'm encouraged by our initial meetings, which were marked by probing questions, varied contributions from all participants, and very useful and fruitful dialogue between the micro-prudential supervisors and those of us who are coming at this task from a more macro side. Although, as I will point out, transparency was an important theme of these meetings, 
The views you are about to hear are my own and not necessarily those of my colleagues. However well we do our task, we need to recognize that the authorities can't do it all. The stability of the financial system ultimately rests on the decisions of its private sector participants. To be sure, government regulations can and should help shape those decisions and provide a structure within which private participants are more likely to help stabilize the system. But in the end, it is those private decisions that will determine the allocation of capital, economic growth, and economic and financial stability. Those decisions cannot contribute to financial stability if they are not well informed. And the subject of my talk tonight is the need for better transparency among financial institutions, markets, and instruments. The available information needs to be comprehensive and accurate. It needs to focus on the important risks and characteristics. It needs to enable comparisons across institutions and across time to facilitate analysis. And it needs to be understandable enough that market participants can assess and act on its implications. We've made considerable progress over the past few years, but more can be done. I'll begin with some thoughts on the overall role of transparency in promoting financial stability. Next, I'll make some suggestions for enhancements to transparency in various aspects of the UK financial system. Transparency has positive externalities, but it is not free, and we will need to consider costs and benefits as we move forward. And finally, I will outline how I believe transparency by the FPC itself can contribute to financial stability as well as to the accountability of the committee. Clearly, in the build-up to the crisis, private sector decisions did not result in financial stability. A variety of risks were poorly understood, poorly managed, and badly priced. And those decisions, inadequately overseen by regulation and supervision, encouraged a housing bubble backed by excessive debt in the United States and overborrowing and spending in a number of European countries, as well as an explosion in the size, leverage, maturity mismatch of the financial system itself. Incentives were skewed, often toward short-run profits. Some investors did not see their money at risk because it was placed with institutions that were thought to be too important to fail. And in my view, above all, people, including supervisors and regulators, became way too complacent about risks, especially tail risks, after years of good growth, mild recessions, and low and stable inflation. But a lack of information also contributed to the mispricing of risk. Institutions, markets, and instruments, and the interactions in the financial system became more opaque in the years leading up to the crisis. Markets became characterized by long, complex chains of intermediation and risk transfer. The risk characteristics of complex, structured instruments were poorly understood. Financial institutions were difficult to evaluate and often were exposed to other institutions in obscure ways that became evident only in the crisis. 
Increased complexity requires increased information for risks to be managed well. Available information did not keep up with the substantial jump in complexity. Market participants came to rely on third parties, credit rating agencies, insurers like AIG and the monolines, in part because they couldn't themselves evaluate the risks. And the lack of information exacerbated the downturn. Contagion fed on uncertainty about the financial health of counterparties spreading and intensifying runs and withdrawal from market making that led itself themselves to falling prices of assets due to fire sales and premiums in illiquid markets. Impaired and fearful lenders cut back sharply on credit available to households and businesses. Households and businesses in turn reduced their spending and we were in a downward spiral. Promoting greater transparency was an important theme of the initial discussions of the FPC. Our first two policy recommendations focused on public release of information about sovereign and banking sector exposures. But recommendation one also states that the FSA will work with the FPC to consider further extensions of disclosure in the future. The record of our meeting notes that a number of members argued for extending disclosure to other sectors and finding other dimensions in which information to investors could be improved, and I count myself in that group of members. In addition, in its discussion of complex instruments and interconnections, the FPC was concerned not only about the information available to the regulators, but also the information that investors have. It is crucial that investors understand the risks associated with the instruments they are buying. Greater transparency is not by itself a sufficient condition for improved market discipline. Market participants need to know that they have funds at risk to give them incentives to monitor and price risk appropriately. In that regard, the efforts underway to roll back the perception of too important to fail with, among other things, new resolution authorities, living wills that will allow those authorities the the authorities to act effectively are critical. A market-based system can function effectively only when institutions can and do fail. Owners, management, creditors must perceive their stakes are potentially at risk if their actions are to promote resilience and stability. The important point is that the institutions must be able to fail in a way that does not imperil the system and harm innocent bystanders. And the stakeholders need to be able to act on their perceptions in ways that discipline the institutions and affect asset prices. Corporate governance structures should allow all shareholders an effective voice in the oversight of the enterprise. Market participants should be able to make their views felt through purchases and sales, including short sales, of instruments in as liquid markets as possible. Market discipline by itself cannot be sufficient to protect financial stability, however, as has been so graphically and tragically demonstrated in the past few years, financial market instability is replete with externalities for the broader economy. And because, those exter because of those externalities, governments have put safety nets under the financial system, including deposit insurance and central bank liquidity provision 
that, and those safety nets engender moral hazard. Moreover, strengthening financial systems often runs into collective action problems where policymakers acting to coordinate behavior, for example, in clearing and settlement, can produce better outcomes for financial stability than each bank acting in its own self-interest. All these market failures mean that strong micro and macro prudential oversight is critical to building more resilient financial systems. Although better market discipline may not be sufficient for financial stability, it is essential and better transparency is a necessary condition for better market discipline. The authorities have a critical role to play in promoting adequate transparency. Those same market failures that call for an important role in the regulation of financial institutions, moral hazard, systemic externalities, collective action problems also imply that institutions and investors do not have the incentives to release as much or as useful information as is needed to judge fully and accurately the risk to the institutions or to the broader financial system. Many of the characteristics of useful information are things the authorities can help banks and other market participants coordinate on. For example, enforcing consistency across institutions, jurisdictions, and time. In this regard, the macroprudential perspective has much to contribute to determining what information is most likely to allow market decisions of private parties to enhance overall financial stability. A substantial amount of work is underway in the United Kingdom and internationally to provide more and better information to market participants so they have the opportunity to understand the risks they are taking. It is not my objective to review those work streams in detail. Rather, I want to highlight some broad principles and areas I think would be especially useful to push a bit further on with respect to transparency of institutions, instruments, and markets. Clearly, these are linked. Market discipline on institutions requires an understanding of the risk characteristics of the instruments they hold and how, and, and, and how institutions and instruments are interconnected in markets. And to the extent that intermediation bypasses traditional financial institutions, financial stability requires that ultimate investors examine and understand the characteristics of the instruments they purchase and of the markets they're traded in. On institutions, for markets discipline to have a chance of enhancing financial stability, counterparties and investors need to be able to make a reasonably accurate assessment of the financial health of an institution and how that health would be affected as economic and financial conditions change. I'll be concentrating on banks in my discussion because they are the key and dominant players in the British financial system. An accurate gauge of financial health of these institutions, their source of profits, their asset quality, the structure of their funding is a particularly challenging objective as they, the instruments they hold and the interconnections among them become more complex. Prompted by the crisis, considerable progress continues to be made on institutional transparency. In part under the leadership of the FSA here in the UK, the FSB globally on risk disclosure practices and pillar three disclosures within the Basel Capital Re regime. 
For example, as a consequence of these efforts, counterparties and investors have more information about special purpose entities, complex securitizations, and structured credits and how they are valued. Banks themselves have greatly increased the amount of information in their annual reports, in some cases in their off-quarter interim reports as well. But transparency is still a work in progress. And I'll highlight some principles for implementing the overall objective of enough transparency to give counterparties an accurate assessment of risks and suggest areas for additional disclosure I'd like to see being given consideration here in the UK. Information should be timely, up-to-date, and sufficiently comprehensive. Investors can't gauge creditworthiness based on data that are out of date. The current practice of UK banks of releasing detailed reports semi-annually semi with less complete interim reports, uh, updates, and other quarters may not allow the public to update its assessment of the financial strength of these institutions frequently enough. In a world in which positions can be adjusted within minutes and soundness affected by daily economic and financial developments, even quarterly updates, really are not enough to keep up on top of, uh, keep, keep up on top of a, a reporting institution in this changing condition. Market participants will naturally adjust their assessments as conditions change based on what they know about the institution. But at least detailed quarterly reporting would allow more frequent benchmarking of those assessments. Comprehensive data should include information about credit exposures to other financial institutions and concentrated concentration, market, and liquidity risk, as the FSB has highlighted. As we now know, these are critical aspects of the risk profile of a bank. And for all banks together, they're critical to the assessment of systemic risk. Contagion often ran through interbank relationships. Banks had concentrated lending in narrow sectors. The originate to distribute model depended on liquid markets for potentially risky assets. And maturity mismatches exposed banks to liquidity and rollover risk. We also found in the crisis that transactions between affiliates can create risks for core institutions, and problems in one affiliate can undermine confidence in other parts of the group. So reporting should also include enough information on group structures and relationships and transactions among affiliates in the group to allow people to judge mutual dependencies and vulnerabilities. Information should fairly represent the condition of the firm. We will not realize the full value of reporting for preserving financial stability if the data, however frequently reported, can't be readily utilized to assess the condition of the firm. In that regard, we should be looking at several ways to improve the usefulness of UK bank reporting. First, I believe serious consideration should be given to requiring reporting of quarterly averages and intraperiod highs and lows for a number of balance sheet categories. For many balance sheet items, single-day data may not be indicative of the true position of the firm, either because the circumstances of that particular day caused the bank to adjust its risk positions in an atypical fashion, or because it deliberately engaged in window dressing to achieve a certain configuration for reporting purposes. This is a long-standing issue 
with the reporting of British banks that has frustrated those trying to understand the true circumstances of the bank. Hartley Withers in his forward to the 1910 edition of Lombard Street remarks that bank reformers press continually for more frequent and clearer statements of the positions by country banks and for the adoption of the average system in all bank statements so there may, may be no possibility of specially arranged displays. Nice word for window dressing, isn't it? Especially arranged displays. Quarterly averages themselves may not tell us a lot about how positions are evolving over the quarter, but they do give a more complete picture than would a single day. Second, investors need to be able to evaluate how banks reach judgment on the fair value of their mark-to-market assets. When liquid markets are not available in which to price assets, elements of model and judgment naturally come into play. We know considerably more about how these are used than we did a few years ago, but we ought to ask whether the public as yet has sufficient information to judge the validity of these marks and to compare them to the techniques used by other institutions on similar assets. Third, the banking book presents very considerable challenges in assessing the health of a financial intermediary. Questions about bank loans continue to color market commentary on, the bank, on bank resilience several years after the onset of the problems. Restoring confidence in the banks may well entail publishing more and better information about the banking book. To inform itself better about threats to financial stability in one of its recommendations, the FPC asked the FSA to obtain more comprehensive information from the banks about forbearance and its link to provisioning. Forbearance can be a stabilizing strategy for an institution and for the system as a whole, but loans that have been forborne are more, much more likely to suffer losses eventually. We wanted to know the prevalence of forbearance and whether the heightened likelihood of losses had been adequately reserved against. If they had, the firm's capital would fairly represent its ability to meet unexpected developments. It would seem that market participants would benefit from similar information, at least at some level of aggregation. As this suggests, ensuring that banks provision appropriately for loan losses is crucial to assessing their ability to generate earnings on loans and absorb losses in the future. Information on provisioning will help most if it is related in a systematic and credible way to expected losses, not just to those already incurred. Accounting standard setters are working towards agreement on expected loss impairment approach, and it's important that they are successful in that regard. Investors should be able to update their assessment of the condition of a banking firm between periodic reports as circumstances change. The positions and risk profile of banks are constantly evolving. They are not frozen in amber between periodic reports, and a lack of knowledge about the evolution can create uncertainty and adversely affect financial stability in a stressful situation. Firms can help relieve uncertainty. One way is by publishing enough information in each report to enable market participants to apply their own informed judgment about the effect of changing circumstances, actual or projected, on the firm. 
These sorts of judgments are especially difficult for products whose valuations can be based on complex models. In publication of more details of the firm's sensitivity analysis of these sorts of credits would be quite useful. Investors should be able to compare across firms and across time to the extent possible. Each firm is different and some of its reporting will be idiosyncratic to its own characteristics, but considerable insight can be gained from comparisons of similar data across firms. The required conformity of reporting won't happen without the intervention of the regulatory authorities or other oversight bodies. The FSA has agreed a code with the BBA on enhanced transparency for UK banks. But it has also noted that they would keep the impact of the BBA code under review and assess the need for further policy initiatives to strengthen disclosure. As our recommendation suggests, the FPC will monitor, be monitoring this process closely to assure itself that the required information to allow market participants to contribute to financial stability is reaching the public. Disclosure by regulators of the information they collect can materially aid transparency and market discipline. Such disclosure can occur without additional cost to reporting institutions, can be focused on key risks, and allows comparability by setting the parameters of the disclosures. It also allows for periodic adjustments to reflect shifting risks. Coordination among regulators in different markets would be helpful in allowing a broader view of changing risks in the many circumstances in which transactions and instruments involve more than one market. The PRA has committed to publishing some of the data it collects, and in my view, this is an area in which uh, that can be exploited for significant useful increases in effective and focused transparency at low cost. Complex and poorly understood instruments were at the heart of the crisis arising from the mortgage market in the United States. The complexity and the interconnections, the long chains of claims embodied in the securitization, resecuritization, and derivatives based on securitizations made it almost impossible for people to understand <clears throat> the risks they were taking and price them. The complexity of the securities, their risk characteristics, meant that the models used to price them were exceedingly difficult to understand themselves. Moreover, detailed granular information about the underlying mortgages and securities was often not readily available. The chains of borrowing and lending made it difficult to trace interdependencies among counterparties and the amount and character of the collateral securing the obligations. This was a problem, not only with respect to the underlying real properties, but also to the various securitizations, securities that were financed along the chain through, for example, repurchase agreements and securities lending. Under these circumstances, it's not surprising that risk was not well-priced. In response to these difficulties, a lot more information is now available about the instruments and structures, and structures are now simpler but the FPC is concerned about backsliding as confidence returns, about the reemergence of complex instruments with chains of counterparty exposures that are not transparent and well understood. In June, we pointed to synthetic ETFs as an example in this regard with counterparty risk hard to evaluate 
because it often involves swaps of underlying collateral that was illiquid, illiquid and difficult to value. But we will want to monitor other instruments and circumstances where complexity complicates valuation by market participants. Transparency about these structures, full information about them readily available to all market participants is required to protect financial stability. Investors in the instruments and counterparties of those involved in the chains need to have the opportunity to evaluate risk. For some instruments, even if disclosure had kept up, it would have been futile. Instruments were so complex that the required information to appropriately monitor risks was overwhelmingly large. Indeed, excessive complexity and information overload may be limiting factors on the effectiveness of disclosures. This possibility perhaps points to a need for avoiding the reemergence of such complexity and for encouraging appropriate design of disclosures for unavoidably complex instruments. For example, a good summary of properties of the instruments and clarity about the assumptions and valuation models would be a, would be a good part of the disclosure. Complexity of the instruments and models used to construct and price them also bred reliance on the opinions of credit rating agencies about their risk characteristics. That meant that market discipline depended on the opinions of a relatively few agents who were being compensated by the issuers. Meaningful transparency about these ratings, how they are arrived at, the characteristics, the securities, or risk profiles is an essential element for market discipline to help stabilize the financial system. The CRAs are now publishing considerably more information about their techniques and the data and models used to arrive at ratings of structured credits. This information will facilitate the analysis of market participants, increasing the variety of views that are brought to bear on pricing securities and increasing the scrutiny of the credit rating agencies themselves. However, both the credit rating agencies and the investors have resisted separate and distinctive nomenclatures for different kinds of securities. As we saw in the crisis, structured credits respond very differently to economic developments affecting their underlying securities than do plain vanilla bonds, yet they carry the same ratings designations. Innumerable anecdotes suggest that many investors did not understand the difference in the risk characteristics of these same similarly rated instruments. A AAA corporate bond is not a AAA structured credit, is not a AAA sovereign debt. Market discipline will be strengthened when different designations force investors to look more carefully at what they are buying. The increased use of central counterparties for clearing derivatives trades will reduce the complexity of many of the connections and interdependencies in the huge and growing sector of the financial markets. CCPs imply more transparent, less complex network, though risk is concentrated in the CCP and the central counterparty, and financial stability requires that it be managed very carefully. At the same time, information about centrally cleared and other derivative transactions will be gathered in trade repositories. These data warehouses represent an opportunity to improve transparency in a number of dimensions. More complete reporting of price information should help in price discovery and enhance 
competition. Release of information about aggregate trade volumes should help policymakers and market participants assess how participation in markets for risk is changing over time. But fragmentation of markets of central counterparties and data warehouses threaten to limit the value of the data and the extent of network simplification. Fragmented markets themselves create complex interdependencies as institutions and final users operate in more than one venue. And the data available from each market may not be as consistent or in a common format that permits market participants or regulators to see the relationships readily or to aggregate positions by counterparty and across markets. Continued industry efforts to develop common data classification systems is needed to enable effective utilization of this new information. In addition, realizing the full value of the repositories may require filling in some data gaps. For example, the current data sets reported to existing data warehouses say nothing about whether two parties to a trade have agreed to take collateral from each other. More generally, consideration might be given to expanding the reach of data warehouses to such transactions as securities lending and collateral swaps, where risk is often difficult to track. Some changes to market trade reporting practices, new or at least enhanced arrangements may be necessary to fill these gaps. Collecting and publishing information is not a costless undertaking and requirements and expectations must be based on considerations that balance costs and benefits. Transparency operates not only by giving information to investors and counterparties, but it also tends to focus management attention on the information being released. A benefit of increased reporting is that it can force senior management to improve its understanding of the risks the institution is taking. The, uh, prospect of facing security analysts can focus the mind, I'm sure. It's important that transparency be centered on the key issues, however. Poorly structured or outmoded requirements can distract management attention from more important matters. There are important limits on the benefits side of the equation, and transparency is in so many other aspects of life, more is not necessarily better. Great amounts of information can make it difficult for investors to pick out the important bits that can have a significant bearing on risk. Ideally, requirements for transparency would be based on an analytic framework that facilitated identification of the most useful pieces of information. Right now, our framework is importantly based on the crisis, what experience taught us about what information was missing as the imbalances were building and then as they imploded. That's a useful and necessary exercise. But the situation will change. Markets will learn the lessons of the last episode. Risks will come from different directions over time as, as a consequence of regulatory arbitrage, innovation, and a shifting macroeconomic landscape. Let me suggest to this audience here at LSE that theoretical and applied research on optimal transparency and how transparency should evolve as circumstances change could contribute importantly to financial stability in the United Kingdom and around the world. Adapting transparency to shifting risks will be a substantial challenge. Identifying those risks is the major task for the Financial Policy Committee and we should be prepared to work with the supervisors in the financial sector 
to translate our concerns into evolving requirements for public disclosure. As I've already noted, one advantage of the use of information gathered by regulators for informing the public is that it should be faster and easier to adapt the collection and release of, of these sorts of data to changing circumstances. The experience in the United States was that the migration of intermediation to outside the banking sector gave rise to critical non-bank points of vulnerability in the financial system. It's difficult to predict how intermediation will evolve in the United Kingdom after the crisis and the regulatory response, but we need to keep a very careful eye on potential risks outside of banks. Finding the right level and mix of information to be released beyond the closely regulated banking sector will be a particularly difficult challenge. We should be able to expand the perimeter of data collection and expectations for transparency, and we should be able to do this more readily than by then expanding the perimeter of regulation itself. Indeed, strengthening market discipline may in, in, may in some circumstances be a substitute for expanding the reach of regulation. At least it probably should be tried first. We do need to balance the benefits of gathering and releasing information against the costs incurred by institutions and market structures. One such potential cost would be the loss of legitimate competitive advantage from revealing proprietary business strategies. The public should have access to enough information to evaluate risks and prospects for a firm without compromising its competitive position or reducing the incentives for growth enhancing innovation and competition for market. This may not be an easy balance to strike and in doing so we need to keep in mind the cost for financial stability of inadequate market discipline. Institutions often cite the cost of gathering and reporting information when they resist new requirements. However, in many respects, the information that a bank or other financial firm is expected to release to the public should be the subset of the information that it itself uses for risk management, assuming its risk management is up to best practice standards, or that it is required to forward to the regulators. That's not to argue that the burden is non-existent. Transparency requirements may not align perfectly with the institution's own risk management data. For example, the authorities may be gathering information by legal entity, the firm may be operating by business or functional lines across entities. But anything released to the public will, re and anything released to the public will probably require more, data, more verification than data used internally. But regulators and other authorities should strive to make their data requirements line up as closely as possible with best practices risk management to keep the added burden minimal. Both regulators and banks express concern that publishing some data in the midst of a crisis could make the situation more serious by suggesting weaknesses in reporting institutions. This is a legitimate concern. For example, inferences from central bank disclosures heightened stigma from using the discount window during the crisis and reduce the effectiveness of this instrument in the crisis. But as I noted near the beginning of this talk, in many respects, the lack of accurate information made the downturn worse. Uncertainty helped the crisis spread indiscriminately among good and bad institutions and instruments. The publication of institution-specific information 
that went into the stress test results in the United States in the spring of 2009 helped clarify and settle conditions. And the information surrounding the European stress test just recently also has helped market participants assess the relative strength of different institutions. A final challenge is coordinating transparency across multiple markets, jurisdictions, and entities. The public is best served by data that are comparable across time and space. International coordination is a particularly difficult challenge, one that the FSB is working on. Weaker requirements may attract the riskiest activities, helping to over, um, <coughs> sorry, the riskiest activities helping to obscure overall systemic risk in the financial system. That migration will, in turn, will put at risk the financial system of the country with the weak requirements. It is in every country's in interest to collaborate on a vigorous, revealing, global transparency regime that maximizes the amount of useful information released to the public subject to the rigorous cost-benefit calculus I've just discussed. The effectiveness of the Financial Policy Committee in preserving financial stability will depend importantly on a high level of transparency about its concerns, recommendations, and deliberations. To be sure, we need to protect sensitive information about individual institutions, and transparency cannot be allowed to impinge on the give and take of the deliberative process. But the FPC's reporting of its evaluation of systemic risk can play a constructive role in preserving financial stability by shaping private sector perceptions of economic and financial fundamentals. If the private sector comes to agree with the FPC, its actions should tend to steer markets away from unsustainable and undesirable paths. And those actions will be a useful complement to the steps the microprudential authorities might make at the recommendation of the FPC. To be effective in influencing the private sector, the FPC's concerns need to be credible and focused. They will be credible if they were well-reasoned, backed up by facts and cogent analysis. That in turn will require a good deal of openness about our deliberations, for example, in the records of our meetings. For the public to be able to evaluate the quality of our recommendations, we need to be clear how we reached our conclusions, including that we considered a range of issues, responses, and outcomes. Our recommendations and concerns also need to be focused on the most important issues, those that truly have the potential to affect financial stability. We must resist the temptation to address a large number of issues in order to more definitely avoid the ex post criticism that we miss something. We will, mo we will be most effective and credible if we can identify the key handful of issues for the public and the microprudential supervisors. Open, well-reasoned analysis will also help build public support for the work of the FPC and understanding of its linkage to economic and financial stability. This support may be helpful when the FPC needs to take potentially difficult steps to contain emerging systemic risks. Transparency about our processes and reasonings is also a particularly critical aspect of the FPC's accountability to the public and parliament. The monetary policy authorities can be judged continuously 
against measurable outcomes in terms of inflation relative to target. The success or failure of the financial stability authorities may not be evident for many years or even decades based on the presence or absence of serious episodes of financial instability. We will need to be judged primarily by how we, carry, how we are carrying out our responsibilities. Are the methods of analysis sensible? Have we identified what appear to be real systemic risks? Do the actions that we recommend to the microprudential authorities appear to address those risks effectively and efficiently? Transparency is not a panacea. Even well-informed market participants will tend to misestimate risks and run in herds from time to time. Moreover, their incentives to act in a stabilizing manner are distorted by the well-known market failures of moral hazard asymmetric information agency problems. I've also noted some limits such as instrument and institution complexity, data overload, the cost of the publishing institution, to the ability of added transparency to help participants become well enough informed. Nonetheless, the allocation of capital in our market-based economy and the stability of the financial sector ultimately rest on the decisions of private market participants. The better informed those participants are, the more productive our economy, the more stable our financial market should be. Improved, well-targeted transparency is an essential element in preserving financial stability, one the FPC has already made a focus of its deliberations and recommendations, and one that this member will continue to give close attention during my time on the committee. Thank you. Don has agreed to take questions. Yeah. Five decades. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, question. Uh, I'm now on the board of trustees of the College of Worcester, so <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to protect our legacy. Or okay. Uh, a lot of. I, I didn't He's actually start my question yet. I said I'd known him for five decades. <laughs> uh, a lot of your talks, Don, or your ideas, Don, had to do with disclosure of information. And the real problem might be the actual decisions that have been made by the financial institutions. What you referred to, I think, is the private decisions made at uh, financial institutions. Will disclosure, do you think, be adequate? Or should also steps be taken to try to uh, restrict or control or guide the decisions that are made in financial institutions, for instance, the markets that they operate in, the securities they can be involved with, and, and so on. So is it disclosure going to be adequate, you know, telling the market what's going on, or do right. more steps need to be taken? Well, I, I think, uh, as I tried to indicate, I don't think disclosure by itself is adequate. Um, there are too many problems, market failures, in the financial markets, the externalities when they get it wrong are too large as we're seeing now. So I do think that um, restrictions, uh, uh, more regulation, buildup of capital, controls on liquidity, uh, insistence by the regulators that risk, internal risk management be up to the task that's given, uh, competition policy, 
there are lots of things the regulators need to do to, to build a structure around the financial markets that will enable market participants to act in a systemically stabilizing way and will be there to control for the possibility that market participants don't always act that way. So I quite agree with the premise of your question. There's a lot to be done by the regulators. But the more we can get the regulators and the market participants working in the same direction, I think clearly um, the better off we'll all be. There was a quick, yeah, yeah. Now, is that microphone working? Because the other one was a bit dodgy. Try it first. Hello, can you yeah. hear me? Yes. My name is Frank Kennedy, I'm at LSE. Uh, I was interested in, um, in what you said about transparency, uh, but what about the, the bank's actions in terms of transparency? Uh, Alistair Darling said uh, that uh, the governor was very much out of touch with the market um, in the 2007 uh, crisis. And one of the big changes that's happened since the, the, the crisis is that the ranking of instruments um, from senior debt all the way down to equity, which used to be very clear to investors, is now very unclear because of burden sharing. And we had David Miles come uh, and present a few weeks ago saying uh, that if you held senior bank debt, uh, you might as well buy bank equity, uh, which I found quite a scary uh, statement. So it, is, doesn't the bank have to be transparent as well? Yes, I, I think the bank, I, I wasn't there in 2007, so I can't comment on the situation then, but I can comment on what's going on right now. And the bank has uh, put considerable resources and effort into increasing its understanding of what's going on in the markets and in preparing itself to fold the micro supervisors into the bank and to uh, use the Financial Policy Committee, the macro, the macro, uh, macro prudential policy in a, in a productive way. There's a very active market intelligence group at the Bank of England that's reaching out to markets. I've made it my um, habit to myself have talks with people in the UK financial markets uh, when I come to London in order to inform myself. So uh, there's just uh, so much going on that perhaps wasn't there before, I don't know. But right now, I'm very confident that the bank is, is uh, doing a lot to help itself understand what's going on to feed into these, these things. You really, I think that your second part of the question was a little different. It was how to look at the capital structure and what's at risk. I think this is a very difficult problem that we're wrestling with on both sides of the Atlantic right now. So creditors should, we should roll back as best we can this too important to fail. As I said in my talk, I think the shareholders, the managers, the sub debt holders, many of the creditors need to feel they have something at stake or they won't act in a, in a stabilizing way. So I think it's really important that these resolution regimes, the living wills, be worked on so that, so that even complex, very important institutions can be resolved in a way that puts these creditors at risk and shareholders, uh, but maintains financial stability. That's a very 
considerable challenge. That's not going to be easy. There's tension really there between those two things. But I think it's important that we work on them and that the bank and others involved in this be clear and transparent about what they see, who's at risk, what order that risk will occur, how they would deal with the resolution of an institution. This is a work in, in process, but I think it is in process. People are trying. Yeah. Um, is this going? Yeah. Um, yeah, Bernard Casey from L, uh, Warwick University and a little bit from LSE. Um, I wanted to try and bring you to something slightly more concrete and wondered whether you could comment upon the recent decision of, I'm not quite sure what its name is, but the federal mortgage uh, authorities who are currently contemplating suing a number of banks, including some UK banks, and whether you could comment upon whether the principle of caveat emptor or the principle of due diligence ought to apply and who was an informed seller and who was an informed consumer. Thank you. Right. So I, I don't know the details and particulars of that particular, uh, that particular potential suit. I know what I've read in the newspapers and that's all and I have no opinion on the merits of that particular suit. I think as I read the newspaper, what the regulator may be alleging, uh, if the suit is, is, uh, is finally filed, that the information it got wasn't sufficient to allow it to be an informed, uh, an informed purchaser, that some of the information it got wasn't uh, as open as it should have been and could have been about the risks of the underlying securities or the underlying securities or the underlying mortgages weren't consistent with the information it was being given. Uh, I think it's um, important to, uh, for people to be open and transparent in their relationships in the markets. And if you're saying something about the securities you're offering to someone else, what you're saying ought to be true. It, it, there is a substantial burden on the purchaser, particularly as you say a sophisticated purchaser, to ask the right questions. But it shouldn't be entirely on the purchaser to ferret out if you're not telling the truth about what's actually happening underneath. So I don't know the, you know, the exact circumstances of this, um, but I, I think the principle of being honest about what you're offering is an important one, an important one to enforce in order to make the market so work more efficiently and effectively, tell the truth. Next question is up there. Thanks very much for a really interesting talk. Um, you've talked a little bit about some broad principles and areas for improvement, and I wondered if you'd be able to say a word or two about implementation. Um, in particular, do you see these as actions that the UK could possibly implement unilaterally? or are there risks to, to competitiveness? And do you see it as being something that we'd implement via an enhanced Pillar 3 uh, disclosure requirement? Or do you think that potentially more ad hoc uh, requirements uh, as and when the FPC sees fit would also be suited? I think there are uh, a number of ways the UK could improve transparency of these institutions, which wouldn't necessarily put it at a competitive disadvantage at all. In fact, it's not clear to me that being more transparent puts you at a competitive disadvantage. I did point to 
a kind of transparency if you reveal a lot about your business plans and your business strategies, that might put you at a, trans at a disadvantage. But I would think in today, today's uh, environment with so much suspicion about what's going on in these institutions that more transparency might be a competitive advantage. And in some respects, the UK, I mean, my, m most of my experience is with the US. And I know in some respects, the UK is not as, UK institutions are not as transparent as US institutions. And I tried to point to a couple of them, the quarterly reporting, for example, uh, the averaging, publishing averages of data, as well as the last day of the quarter, which U.S. institutions do. And I think another aspect that the U.S. and other uh, countries perhaps are ahead of the U.K. is publishing information that the regulators get. So in the U.S. we have the call reports and the income reports. And at least that enforces some comparability across the reporting requirements gives, uh, allows investors to add up across banks as well as to compare banks. So I, th I think there's, there are a number of things the UK can do that certainly wouldn't put them at a disadvantage and would actually bring them up to higher standards that others have already adhered to. Did you want us to go next? Uh, Toby Chambers, uh, We Care Foundation. You mentioned uh, bringing sort of confidence into the market by the bank stress tests and obviously back in 2009 that was a sort of a, a major sort of turning point. Um, recently obviously the, the European bank stress tests sort of were published and in the model they were using that there wouldn't be a sort of a Greek default but now we're starting to see the confidence, there is no confidence because everyone really believes that not just Greece, but a lot of the sovereign debt issue is becoming a systemic risk. Right, but I, I think the problems are not due to a lack of transparency on the banks. I think the problems are underlying, as you, as you noted, because of questions about sovereigns, sovereign debts and banks and their exposures. And to a considerable extent, the European stress test um, helped investors see where banks' exposures were, and I would hope and expect would help to investors differentiate between banks who are more and less exposed. So I, it's true that the European stress test didn't uh, make, the pro make the underlying problems go away. They weren't designed to do that. They were designed to bring information, and I think they did bring information. That was the, the first recommendation of the Financial Policy Committee was to make sure that the UK authorities had their banks release a considerable amount of information on their exposures, both banking and sovereign exposures, because we felt it was important that people know, even when the information is not, uh, you know, is not helpful, particularly to the bank. I think it reduces uncertainty it helps investors sort things out. And uh, the, the European stress test, although, you know, gave, gave investors a lot of information that was useful. Didn't solve the underlying problem, but it gave them useful information. Hello? Yes. Um, I'm going to ask for a prediction, but, uh -oh. but I won't hold you to it. <laughs> uh, do you foresee a great increase in 
CCP clearing of derivatives and a, uh, a consequent decrease in bilateral uh, derivatives trading or an increase in both? So I think derivatives, uh, I see a big increase in CCP derivatives trading in the U.S. This has been mandated by law to the extent possible. I think, uh, and internationally, globally, under the F uh, Financial Stability Board, um, as well as uh, various other Basel entities, uh, they're looking very carefully at how to make this migration and to make it safe. Uh, so, and I think it's fundamentally healthy. Now, it, as I noted in my talk, it does mean that all the risk is concentrated in a few CCPs. So it's really, although it's more transparent, you know who your counterparty is, the authorities can, must make sure that the CCP, that the counterparty is, is risk, as riskless as possible. So I, I think it's a, it's a healthy development, but it's one that must be managed uh, by the authorities. I think um, derivatives trading will continue to grow rapidly. I think this is a useful part of the market if it's done right. And uh, I don't know, you know what proportion will be on and off exchange or on and off CCPs, but I hope that more and more it's concentrated on exchanges and goes through central counterparties, central clearing mechanisms that I think uh, appropriately manage that will increase transparency both for the public and the pricing, for example, uh, and for the authorities. Hi, um, thank you for your talk. Uh, I'm, I'm coming at the point of view is I see systemic risks coming from the larger institutions, especially the faster growing ones. Do you think, stepping back a level, that the size of a financial institution should be limited if there isn't enough adequate or good quality disclosure coming from it? I think what we should concentrate is making sure that the disclosure is adequate and of high quality, and then we won't need to limit, we won't, that won't be a requirement of systemic uh, stability. So I think both, uh, and there's more, I mean, so the disclosure must be, must be adequate and of high quality. Uh, institutions that are so critical to the financial system, as we saw in the crisis, must be held to higher standards higher standards of capital, higher standards of liquidity, higher standards of risk management. And I think we need to enforce all that on these larger systemically important institutions. We need to have these resolution regimes, special resolution regimes, so that if they get in trouble, so all that is to make sure to the extent possible they don't get in trouble, and then we need resolution regimes in the remote possibility despite higher capital, greater liquidity, they do get in trouble, that they can be resolved without all the fallout on the, uh, on the financial system. And I think if we do that, it won't be, uh, shouldn't be necessary to put arbitrary limits on the size. <coughs> Having said that, I do worry about competition and concentration. Um, one of the consequences of the crisis was stronger institutions uh, taking over weaker institutions, sometimes undermining the stronger institutions in the process, uh, but there are a lot fewer large institutions, a lot fewer important institutions, and I think this is a problem, and I hope that 
among the things we think about as authorities uh, everywhere, not just in the United Kingdom, is making sure there aren't any barriers to the growth of small and smaller and medium-sized institutions. These larger guys need competition. Uh, and uh, however that can be facilitated, I think that would be a plus, not only for financial stability, since it would reduce their systemic importance, but because they would be supplying uh, credit services to households and businesses and deposit services to household and businesses, presumably at better rates when there's more competition. Good evening, Mr. Cohn. Thank you for your talk. Uh, my name is Francisco, and I'd like to know your thoughts on the recent reform of the Spanish Constitution to include, to include a chapter in it which will set the amount of, the, of deficit that governments can allow in the, in the economy. Is this not reshaping the Constitution with an ideology? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the end of the question. Is this is not, not reshaping the Constitution with an ideology? neoliberal ideology. With a oops, ideology. 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 Yeah. I, I don't um, want to comment on the particulars of the Spanish Constitution. I'm not familiar enough with that. I do think that we are seeing demonstrated in many, many countries in many, many ways that the maintenance of medium and long-term fiscal sustainability has just been a huge challenge that our governments are not have not been up to meeting. Uh, partly this reflects the aging population, the demographics. Uh, more people like Charles and me with whiter hair and less of it, uh, putting more pressure on our, gov on our government services. Um, I don't know whether a constitutional amendment is the right way to go, and I'm not familiar enough with Spain to comment on that. But I do think that clearly more needs to be done to put debt in the U.S. and many countries in Europe on a more sustainable long-run basis, however democracies decide they need to do that. On the far left wing. <laughs> Thanks. Um, just given that um, no one's actually stopping financial institutions from disclosing information, why, why do you think that the market hasn't pushed um, pushed banks more in that direction um, and sort of related to that and potentially the answer is if you push for more disclosure do you think that part, part of something that will, will happen is that there are things that the banks are doing that they will cease to do by nature of them being disclosed and what are the um, potential unforeseen consequences of that and if I can tag one more just general regulatory one on the end I mean as, I think the LDC debt crisis in the 80s um, the, the regulatory response under, under Volcker then was to basically bury it under the carpet. I just wondered if you could sort of comment on, on that versus now, i.e. not take write-downs, not, not, not um, mm -hmm. force a panic, etc. Right. So on the, on the first issue, why, doesn't, why didn't the market push for more information? Uh, honestly, I'm not sure. I think it was among my disappointments as the crisis got going was um, realizing how little the markets, market participants understood of what they were buying and the risk characteristics of what they were buying. I think uh, I pointed to one potential 
problem in my talk, which was the credit rating agencies and the trust they put in the credit rating agencies, their uh, fact that they didn't dig below the surface of those AAA ratings to find out what was really there. And there was uh, resistance. If you read some of these books about people who tried to take the opposite tack and make the opposite bet, it was often hard to find the information and get the information to judge what the underlying value of securities, the securities were. To some extent, the issuers of the securities, the banks themselves have some, uh, may see some interest, at least before the crisis, in being a little obscure and a little opaque. It gives them perhaps an opportunity to exploit some profit margins that wouldn't be there if they were less obscure and less opaque. And the, so there's an incentive to some extent on the other side. But why the investors couldn't and didn't um, exert more discipline themselves, I think is, uh, is, uh, is, a, is a very good question. I mean, there are all these market failures, moral hazard and whatnot, that must have contributed to that. You asked whether transparency may in induce banks not to do some things they're already they're doing right now. I think by and large, that's probably a good thing. I hope so. I hope to the extent that they are forced to reveal information, not information about uh, business strategies that might put them at a competitive disadvantage. I'm concerned about that. But I think to the extent they are forced to uh, release information that reveals some underlying problems, that the take action to address those problems. That would be a good part of transparency. One of the things I pointed to in my talk was that uh, forcing transparency on bank management will focus that management on the things that it is revealing. And uh, anecdotes, at least, that I've heard from bankers and others say, if you've got to go in front of those analysts and defend your statement, well, you really concentrate on what's in that statement. And I think too often uh, bank management didn't concentrate enough before the, before, the, before the crisis. The third question you asked was whether handling uh, things as was done in the 80s of um, at least delaying the realization of the losses and trying to work through the problems in a less transparent way. Um, was a preferred way to go, and I would say no. I don't think it's possible now. I think, and I think the problems of anything were way too big. I think some of the weaknesses of that time um, actually did come out in issues. Think about it from the U.S. perspective, Continental Illinois, and some of the other problems that uh, occurred in the 1980s. So I don't think um, sweeping it under the rug and trying to sort of work through it uh, without uh, public uh, transparency is going to work, and when it gets so intense that the that the government needs to, the taxpayers need to put their uh, credibility and their credit behind the banks, it's not it's not viable. I mean, you they have, the taxpayers have to know what they're doing and why they're doing it, and what the government is uh, is putting is what the government is doing and why it's doing it. So I think that kind of way of working might have worked in the 80s. This is a new, different world and a much more severe crisis and it wouldn't possibly work at this in these circumstances.
I'm only going to take three more questions. First of all, the lady in the middle of the back, then the gentleman with the laptop, and then uh, there are a lot of, lot of gentlemen with laptops. So yeah, right. sitting at the end. Then. Okay. Right. And then the gentleman in the front row up there. You're the last question. Hi. Uh, my name's Vandana Patel, Economic Perspectives. Um, you I'm having trouble hearing. Could you make... Okay. Right. Sorry, can you hear me? That's now? better. Uh, Vandana Patel, Economic Perspectives. Um, you mentioned that banks are sort of involved in bank forbearance at the moment and that you said that they should have to account for sort of current losses and also expected future losses. Um, do you think by asking them to disclose this information they'll build up too many capital reserves? And in turn, do you think it's, you know, this disclosure is too much? Will it have a detrimental impact on the economy? Will they stop lending to businesses and households and so forth? Do you think it will go to the reverse extreme? Yeah. I, I, I think... As a general rule, more disclosure shouldn't have a detrimental impact on the economy. Um, it should give people a better feeling for what the underlying value of the bank is. It might, as this gentleman over here noted, that what you disclose might influence how you act. Uh, there's nothing wrong with forbearance. Uh, forbearance, as I noted, and as the Financial Policy Committee noted, can be can help stabilize the financial system if it's done right. But it also needs to be accompanied by sufficient care, needs to be done in the right circumstances, and to the extent that there's more losses coming, uh, banks need to provide for that. Uh, so I'm, I'm not uh, concerned that more transparency about forbearance would have an adverse effect on the system. I think, um, on balance, it would be a better thing. So. Thank you. Uh, my name is Alex Person. I'm a journalist at Dow Jones. I had a, a question. You mentioned in your speech about um, the FPC's worried about increased complexity returning in some forms of instrument, um, synthetic exchange-traded funds being an right. example. Right. I wondered if you could elaborate and say what other instruments might be a danger, or what, what types of instruments, what area? I think we're, our, our focus was on the synthetic ETFs and the fact that uh, a purchaser of synthetic ETF isn't the, the seller, it doesn't have the same bundle of securities underneath and there's a lot of collateral exchange going on and the counterparty is very important. So we thought it was important for for purchasers to understand what they were getting and it wasn't clear to us that they were. I don't, um, I'm not aware of other instruments today that are increasing in complexity. I do, as I noted, I think one of the issues that we saw in the crisis was securities lending, uh, tri-party repo, some of these secured uh, instruments became uh, channels for contagion and the risk underlying those uh, instruments wasn't sufficiently well recognized by either the lender or the borrower. The borrower thought one of the surprising things to me that happened uh, with Bear Stearns was that was secure lending that fled Bear Stearns and uh, they lost access to the tri-party market. Uh, that was something that 
I thought would kind of be there if you're putting up security, but it's understandable. And with 2020 hindsight, it's understandable if the underlying collateral, the, the underlying collateral behind those RPs became uh, less and less transparent itself, more, uh, less and less liquid. Uh, and so that market had been transformed into something it wasn't some time ago. So I think this is just something that the uh, Financial Policy Committee needs to keep an eye on. I wouldn't point, not the tri-party RP per se, but the idea that as confidence returns that people will start taking more risks, that's part of our job is to watch that carefully and uh, at least alert people when we see it happening. You have the privilege of the last question, sir. Uh, hi there, a lot of pressure. Um, Thank you very much for the talk. Um, look, I, I just want to know uh, one thing, and uh, to me, it, it doesn't appear any safer. Um, basically, my question is, um, how much is our financial system safer slash more protected from systemic risk today than it was three years ago? You know, have we actually learned from our mistakes? You know, have, have we learned to implement what we've learned? So I think it's considerably safer than it was, but it's probably not safe enough. So I, the capital levels have risen. Uh, banks and supervisors are paying much more attention to liquidity. Uh, banks are being required to uh, raise their game in risk management. Uh, so I think there are a number of dimensions in which the banking system is in better shape than it was in the middle of 2007. But I think we've got a ways to go before we could be we need to be more confident that a similar shock coming along in the future wouldn't have the kind of very distressing, uh, really terrible consequences that this one has had, put people out of work in, in, many, uh, in many countries, in many ways, uh, put people's savings at risk. Uh, we're, we're building a safer financial uh, system but it certainly is not uh, mission accomplished yet, to borrow a phrase. <laughs> well, thank you so much for answering so many questions so fully and so um, openly. And before we let you go, I think we should thank you in our traditional way. So thank you very, very much.